In today's passage, which I just read for you, John eleven twenty-eight to 36, Jesus' emotions are front and center. Verse 33 says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and great trouble. And of course, verse 35 says that Jesus wept. Far from being a dispassionate observer of the grief of his friend Mary, Jesus weeps with her. Jesus weeps for Lazarus. Now, we should know that there are commentators who claim that Jesus wept because of the sin of unbelief that he supposedly saw in Mary and in the Jews who were needlessly weeping, though he who is the resurrection and the life was present. If they had faith in who Jesus was, these commentators argue, then they wouldn't be weeping at all. And so they posit that Jesus was weeping, not for the same reason that Mary and the others were weeping, but that Jesus was actually weeping over their unbelief. It was their unbelief which caused Jesus to be deeply moved and troubled and which caused him to weep. The biggest problem with this perspective is that Jesus' emotions in verse 38 actually have nothing to do with the people at hand. Look, we didn't read that section, but look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It is in relation to the tomb that Jesus is deeply moved in verse 38, not in relation to the people. It is the contemplation of Lazarus' death which moves Jesus in verse 38. And so it is more consistent to see Jesus being deeply moved also over Lazarus' death in 33 and in 35. But why weep since Jesus knew that he would raise Lazarus? Why would Jesus weep since he himself knew that he would raise Lazarus? We just say he had no tears for his own griefs. Certainly in uh, this passage, if Jesus was simply crying because he was sad that his friend was gone, uh, that wouldn't really make sense, would it? If it was just simply that his friend was gone, and we know that death separates us from ones that we love, and we cry, we have tears for our own griefs. If Jesus was simply having tears for his own griefs, because Lazarus was gone, that wouldn't really make sense. Because Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. So why would Jesus weep then? John Calvin has famously said that Christ does not approach the tomb as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contact. In other words, like as a boxer about to step in the ring or something like that. Calvin goes on to say, Therefore we need not wonder that he groans, for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. In other words, Calvin goes on, he contemplated the transaction itself rather than the men. Calvin also says, Christ contemplated something higher, namely the misery of the whole human race. For he knew well what had been enjoined on him by the Father and why he was sent into the world namely to free us from all evils. If I could summarize that, Jesus wept not only for Lazarus' death, but for death itself. This is what Calvin is saying here. Jesus was deeply moved, our translation says. And the Greek word used is also the same word used, not in the Bible, but outside the Bible, for the snorting of horses. This is the sense in which Jesus was deeply moved. Some have suggested then that he was indignant or angry the way that you might imagine a snorting warhorse. Jesus was indignant and somewhat angry at seeing the effects of sin and death upon his friend. 
and yes, as Calvin says, upon the whole human race. Imagine that a friend of yours was beat up badly, you know, maybe in a dark alley somewhere in town late at night or something like this. And you go to visit them at QEH, and you hear that they've been beat up. But you go in and you see them in a real bad way. You see the, you see the bruises, and you see the swelling, and you see the tears in their eyes, and they, they try to speak to you, but they can't because their mouth is wired shut as their jaw heals, and so on and so forth. You, you yourself might find yourself snorting, as it were, as a warhorse, angry, indignant that this has happened to your friend, even as you are overcome with a sense of grief and sadness also. This seems to be what is happening here. Jesus is about to do in microcosm what he will more fully do by his own death and resurrection. Jesus is, as Calvin says, a champion about to enter the ring to do battle with death itself on behalf of one whom he loved. It is death and the implication of sin, the sin of mankind, which has caused death to enter this world. Don't mistake me, I'm not saying Lazarus sinned in a specific way and therefore he died, but we die because we sin. It is our estate to live as sinners in a sin-cursed world and to die. Jesus here comes face to face with the stark reality of the brokenness, the cursedness of this world, the plight of sinful man. His friend is in the tomb, overcome by sin and death. And it is this situation, as he contemplates not only Lazarus's misery, but the misery of the whole human race, as Calvin says, in general, that causes Jesus to weep and to be indignant at the same time because of what is happening here. As Jesus contemplates our misery, it moves him. Jesus cares about us. Jesus is moved with compassion for us. Jesus is indignant or angry about sin and death. And Jesus is motivated to do something about it. He wants to rescue those who are in death's clutches, including his friend Lazarus here in John chapter 11. Jesus does not merely mourn over the misery of the human race, but he does mourn over the misery of the human race. He does not merely mourn, but yes, he does mourn over the misery of the human race. This shows us that God cares for us and stands ready to rescue us. This is the big idea of the message today, which we'll explore now in greater detail. And let's begin with this, the impassibility of God in relation to the emotions of Jesus. As I mentioned several weeks ago at the start of this chapter, we must affirm that God is without passions, as our confession says. This is a necessary consequence of Scripture, of the teaching of the Bible. We don't believe it simply because our confession says it, but our confession says it because the framers of the confession believed it, and rightly so, to be biblical. God is without passions. This is the teaching of the Bible. And yet it is a concept liable to be misunderstood. So let's look at that now in greater detail. Passions, in theological language, are the feelings that we humans have in response to something. We are moved, we are changed, we are affected by things. You begin the day in one frame of mind, and then something happens to you, and suddenly you're in a different frame of mind. You've changed. You were in a good mood, but now you're in a bad mood. When a traumatic life event 
happens to someone. We often say, after that incident, he or she was never the same. In contrast to these things, God doesn't have feelings which are moved, changed, affected by things that happen to him or by things that he perceives in the world outside of him. God doesn't wake up, so to speak, in a good mood and then read the New York Times and become in a bad mood. This is not how it works. God does not wake up and turn on Fox or CNN or something else and find his feelings affected, changed, moved by what he perceives. He doesn't open his smartphone and go on Facebook and find a comment that someone left on one of his posts and find that it affects him in some way. This is not how it works. We might say of a government official who is in charge of making a decision that affects us, I hope we catch him on a good day. So we need to go into a government office and we need to ask them to correct a certain error on our paperwork or to make a decision about something that we've applied for or something like this. We might say, we hope we catch him on a good day. Listen, you don't need to catch God on a good day. God doesn't have good days and bad days. God doesn't have moods. God is not affected by things outside him. There is nothing that changes him. There is nothing that shifts him from being in a state that he was, not previously, into a new state. That doesn't happen to God, though it happens to us. This is the meaning of God being without passions, as our confession says. And mark this, I said this a few weeks ago, and I repeated it then, and I will repeat it now, and then repeat it again now. Mark this, the fact that God is without passions does not mean that God couldn't care less. It actually means that God couldn't care more. God's care doesn't ebb and flow the way that ours does. This section bears repeating. This, If you were here a few weeks ago, the next three, four minutes, you've heard before. But let me say again so it's crystal clear. Our care ebbs and flows. We have that saying, out of sight, out of mind. And isn't it true? That when we are with someone, when we are talking to someone, we're deeply invested in them and their concerns and what happens with them. If they move or we move, what happens? We lose touch, out of sight, out of mind. It is not my intention to move back to Canada, but if I did, there is an inevitable process that would happen in your affections for me. Gradually, you would become less and less invested in me. I would be less and less present to you in terms of your thoughts, your cares, your prayers, etc., etc. The same would happen if I moved back to Canada in terms of my care for you. I'm profoundly wrapped up in your lives, concerned with your lives, concerned with your cares. I pray for you. I hear about something that happens and it it, it impacts me. If I were to move back to Canada, inevitably, over time, that same out-of-sight, out-of-mind dynamic would happen in terms of my care for you. It doesn't mean that if word got to me somehow that something had happened to one of you, that it would, I would be utterly unaffected by it. But there is no doubt that we would grow distant from one another and less concerned with one another if something like that happened. We also say, time heals all wounds, which is really a polite way of saying, over time you just think about it less and less, and, and so it's not as preoccupying a concern as it once was. When we think about a certain thing, it's still going to hurt. It's still going to affect us. 
So time doesn't heal wounds in that sense, but there is a sense in which the further that you get from something bad that happened to you that causes you pain, you just think about it less and less, and so that pain button is pushed less frequently. If someone is not in our mind, if we're not thinking about someone, if we're not focused on someone, then we're not uh, going to care about them the same way. As the passage of, uh, or as the increase of space affects our affection, so does the increase of time. That the further we get away from a situation or something, the less that we end up caring about that situation. There is no out of sight, out of mind for God. There is no time in which anything is not present before God. So God cares just as much about what happened in the ancient Babylonian Empire now as he did then. God cares just as much about me now that I'm here in Barbados as he did when I was in Canada. And if I were to move, he would care just as much about you today as, or then as he, would, as he does today, even if I don't care as much about you then as I do today. There is no increase of time, there is no increase of distance which makes God care less. God feels, if you will, just as strongly about something when it's on the other side of the world or after a thousand years have elapsed as he does here and now. God is immutable and unchanging and therefore his disposition towards things does not change. It does not ebb and flow. This is what we mean when we say God is impassable. Jesus, however, in his human nature, was moved, was moved, as our translation says here in verse 33. Yet God cannot be moved. So, how can this be? Theologically, we say that Christ is impassable according to his divine nature, and yet passable according to his human nature. Do we suppose then that Jesus in his humanity feels differently about sin and death than Jesus in his divinity? What an absurd contradiction that would be. In the same man, his human nature cares and his divine nature doesn't care. What an absurd contradiction that would be. Rather, we say that Jesus feels and expresses in a way appropriate to human nature, in his human nature, that which is always and immutably true of his divine nature. Let me try to illustrate that idea, as it's a little bit abstract. And we're going somewhere with this. This is not just a theology lecture. This is profoundly relevant to your life. But we've got to get the theology right. Let me try to illustrate what I just explained. As a human, Jesus wasn't always with the Pharisees, was he? As a human, Jesus wasn't always with the suffering, was he? As a human, Jesus wasn't always with those such as Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, whom he loved. And so when Jesus was with the Pharisees, and they were spouting nonsense, and they were parading around hypocritically, Jesus was angry. When Jesus was with the crowds that were like sheep without a shepherd, hungry and hurting and sick and confused, Jesus felt compassion. When Jesus was with his friends, like Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he felt love. Jesus, in his human nature, 
would feel a certain way at any given moment, depending on who he was with and what was happening in his earthly life. So anger at times, compassion at times, love at times. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but I suspect laughter at times, happiness at times, sadness at times, and so on and so forth. Yet in Jesus' divinity, he is always angry with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In his divinity, he is always compassionate toward the suffering. In his divinity, he is always loving towards his friends. But this In human nature, we can't possibly give expression to this fullness of the whole spectrum of emotion at any given time. You, you hear that a friend went and traveled and visited another friend and came back to you and you said, how is he doing? What's going on? How did he seem? Well, he seemed extremely angry and happy, and sad, and concerned, and blessed, and jovial, and all at the same time, in fullness of perfection, without measure, and unchangeably so. The whole two weeks I was, the whole two weeks I was there, it didn't vary. You understand that human, human nature can't possibly give expression to that kind of being, that mode of being. And so what is true of the Godhead is also true of the Son, of course. And yet in his humanity, he gives expression to that sort of being in a human way, which feels one thing at a time, depending on what's going on in a given situation. So, I repeat what I said a moment ago. Jesus feels and expresses in a way appropriate to human nature, in his human nature, what is always and unchangeably true of the divine nature. Jesus, in his humanity, shows us, in a human way, what is always true of the Godhead. And therefore, and we come now to the main thrust of our teaching this morning, therefore, Jesus, in his humanity, here in John 11, shows us what is unchangingly and perpetually true of God's disposition towards the human race in whatever our situation is. If we are hypocrites, Jesus' anger towards the Pharisees shows us that God is angry with us. If we are suffering, Jesus' compassion towards the suffering show us that God is compassionate towards us. If we are his friends, Jesus' love for his friends shows us that God loves us. So we are not saying that Christ in his humanity cares more in his humanity than he does in his divinity. When we say that his human nature has affection and passions for Lazarus, but his divine nature doesn't, we're rather saying that the human affections of Christ Jesus, even toward Lazarus, reveal in a human way which ebbs and flows depending on how we are affected by changing circumstances. Jesus' affections for Lazarus reveal what is ever true of Christ Jesus in his divinity. Therefore, Jesus being deeply moved and troubled and weeping over sin and death shows us 
in a human way that God cares about the misery of the human race. Our death and the sin which precipitated it or caused it. Let's consider now the general care of God for the world. We see Jesus move not merely in this passage for Lazarus' death or because of Lazarus' death, but for the general plight of mankind. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus, and so he wasn't just crying because my friend, my buddy Lazarus is gone, and I'm not going to see him again until the other side. This is not why Jesus was crying. This is not why Jesus wept. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus, but he also knew that Lazarus was just one among all of us who are subject to this same death because of the sin of mankind. Lazarus is presented to us in John 11 as basically a case study. As I said, a microcosm of the problem that we have and what Jesus can do about it. Lazarus was one example of a man who died because he is a son of Adam who has been plunged into guilt and corruption and subject to a curse. Jesus is face to face with that reality that Lazarus is one among a lost race of mankind who together have been plunged into guilt and corruption and subjected to a curse. As Calvin said, which I quoted earlier, Christ contemplated something higher, namely the misery of the whole human race. For he knew what he knew well what had been enjoined on him by the Father, and why he was sent into the world, namely to free us from all evils. Us as the human race. We do not read that God so loved his elect that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever among them believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What does it say? It says God so loved the world. And the world in John, as we have seen several times throughout our study, John uses that word basically pejoratively almost all the time to represent that system, that culture, that society of ungodly, rebellious, treasonous, treacherous men who live in violation of God's laws and in opposition to God. We read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There is a general love of God for mankind. God mourns, so to speak. Again, we're not, we can't predicate that properly of God. We can't say that that's exactly the right way to speak, as I have outlined. That's not really a precise way to speak about God. But the Bible speaks improperly, which doesn't mean inaccurately or incorrectly. It just means imprecisely. The Bible speaks improperly of God's emotions, affections throughout. God repents about this. God regrets that. God, is uh, his indignation rises up. Things like this. Right? We may say that God mourns over the sin and death that is in this world because of sin. We may say that God... Uh, sorry, we may certainly say that God loves, in some sense, all people everywhere without exception. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever, from among whom? From among the world. That unbelieving, 
ungodly society, that whosoever from among them believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Ezekiel 33.11. In, in Ezekiel 33.11, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. We see in this vein Jesus grieving over the people of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37 and Luke 13:34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Notice who was not willing. It is not God who is not willing to let them come to him. But it is they themselves who are not willing to come to him. Jesus says of the unbelieving city, how often I have longed to gather you under my wings as a hand gathers its chicks. But you were not willing. God is immutably and perpetually, without change, without ebbing and flowing, willing to receive any and all who draw near to him by faith in Christ. Statements like that from Matthew or Luke, which I just read, show us this. Jesus is showing us in a human way in human terms, with human passions, with human affections, that which is perpetually, immutably, unchangeably, impassably true of the Godhead. There is a willingness in God, a concern for the lost, and a willingness to receive any who draw near to him by faith. And yet, of course, we know that not all are saved. And we unashamedly believe in the doctrine of election, which is taught clearly in the scripture in passages like Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, which actually was, I was going to say coincidentally, but I guess providentially read earlier in the service today. We, were, we started in uh, Matthew, just read one chapter every service, and when we finished Matthew, we started Romans. We could never have planned that Romans 9 would have been read this particular morning. But here it is. The Bible plainly also teaches the doctrine of election in passages like Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. So what are we to make of this? If God loves all people without exception, then why are all people without exception not elected and saved? It's beyond the scope of our sermon today to explore that consideration exhaustively. But the answer lies in the prioritization of God's purpose to reveal his character, not only in salvation, but also in judgment. We see different aspects of who God is in the salvation of his elect than we see in the, the damnation of the reprobate. And God has designed to reveal the whole spectrum of who he is, both in salvation and in judgment. God wants to reveal not only his glory and his grace, but also the glory of his justice and his wrath against sin. For our purposes today, suffice it to say that when sinners won't come, And we know they won't, apart from the electing and regenerating grace of God. When sinners won't come, God does not callously and sadistically and coldly cast them into hell without a second thought. But even as God has decreed at the end of the day to save his elect and to damn the reprobate, Nevertheless, the Lord says, I take no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. God grieves, so to speak, over the lost, even as Jesus himself grieved over Jerusalem. Oh, I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. Here's the takeaway so far. Let no sinner think that God does not have some love for him. Let no unbeliever come to this church and come away thinking that God has no love whatsoever in his heart towards that unbeliever. Let no unbeliever hear in our evangelism, in the way that we speak about the decrees of God, and the electing grace of God, and the sovereignty of God and salvation. Let no one think that God does not have some love for him, the unbeliever. And let no one think that God is not willing that he should come and that he should draw near to God through faith in Christ Jesus and be saved to the uttermost. Jesus' compassion here in John 11 for the plight of mankind and his grief over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you but you are not well. These passions that we see in Christ Jesus, in his human nature, don't show us something that is in contrast with the disposition of the Godhead towards the lost, but rather show us in a human way that which is immutably, unchangeably, perpetually, impassively true of the Godhead. Let's consider now, however, the special love that God does have for his elect. We see in microcosm in John 11 what Jesus is going to do for all who believe in him. For all of those chosen by the Father to whom he has been sent to save. William Hendrickson says, These were not the tears of the professional mourner nor the tears of the sentimentalist, but those of the pure and holy, sympathizing high priest. We read that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, and yet without sin, if he was going to be the kind of high priest that we needed. We're familiar with the verse that says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We might add monkeys, dogs, whatever. A non-human can't be a substitute for human in terms of propitiation for our sin. A non-human can't bear God's wrath on behalf of humans in order to propitiate God's wrath against sin. This means, however, not only that bulls and goats, that dogs and monkeys cannot take away sin, this also means that the very angels in heaven could never have taken away sin. The Lord, the Lord could not have even taken an archangel and put him upon the cross in order that we might be saved. If I may say so reverently, this also means that even the Son of God had he not taken on flesh and dwelt among us and been made his, like his brothers in every respect and yet without sin could not have taken away sin. You see, Jesus had to be made like his brothers. This is what Hebrews 2.17 tells us. In every respect and yet without sin, if he was going to perform the priestly work that he had to perform, he had to become one of us. He had to take on flesh and dwell among us. 
Jesus had to enter into our suffering to live among us, to feel our griefs, to suffer himself in order that he might be sympathetic. But also, he himself had to suffer on the cross as a human for human sin. If we were ever to have the wrath of God turned away from us, we needed a human substitute. And so Christ Jesus came into this world not to stand on the sidelines and to cheer for us as we try to propitiate God ourselves. Not to encourage us as we make our way through a difficult life. Like a cheerleader, you can do it. Go church. Jesus came not to do that, not to say, come on, try harder, do a little bit better, dig deeper. It's the fourth quarter, it's the second half, it's overtime. Come on, you can do it. The Godhead, as it were, looked upon our misery as Jesus looked upon the tomb of Lazarus. And snorted with indignation. An anger. A rage at what had become of his good creation. And a sadness, a grief. And Jesus entered in to our suffering. To live in the place of sinners. As a human. To attain human righteousness. To die on the cross as a human. To propitiate God's wrath against human sin. Jesus rose again from the dead, not reverting back to something that he was before, prior to the incarnation, some sort of non-human state. But Jesus rose as a human. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in order that as he was raised, we would also be raised. In order for there to be a gospel, Jesus had to come. And before Jesus came, Jesus had to care. And care he did. We don't see in the incarnation of Christ Jesus a disposition towards our misery which is foreign to the Godhead. We don't see in the incarnation of Christ Jesus a disposition towards the suffering that is foreign to the Godhead. We don't see in the incarnation of Jesus a concern for the spiritually dead and lost that is foreign to the Godhead. We don't see in the incarnation a longing to gather unbelievers under His wings which is foreign to the Godhead. We see in Christ Jesus in a way appropriate to a human nature that which is true of the Godhead in a way that is proper to divinity. Love, care, concern, We see then that it was that which prompted Jesus to come into this world. And we see that Jesus fulfilled his mandate and his mission, as Calvin said, to free us as a race from all evil in a manner consistent with his nature as the Son of God. Jesus didn't go rogue when he took on flesh to dwell among us and start pursuing this rescue in a manner inconsistent with the disposition of the Father and the Spirit towards us, but the very manner in which Jesus ministered and lived and related to people and accomplished His work shows us in a human way that which is true of the Godhead. 
And so when Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb, he is showing us something of God's heart for those who are subject to death because of sin. When Jesus is deeply moved, snorts with indignation as a war horse because his friend is dead, this shows us how Godhead feels about death. The disposition of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit toward death. That God is impassable does not mean that God couldn't care less. That God is impassable means that God couldn't care more. That there is no weakening, no waning, no ebbing and flowing of God's concern for the human race which has been plunged into sin and misery because of Adam. God is profoundly concerned in a way that is proper to God. We could even say God is moved. And it was our plight which moved God, so to speak, improperly speaking, to send Christ Jesus into the world. And Christ Jesus came to live a perfect life for sinners, to die a propitiating death, a a death which turns away God's wrath from us for sinners. And Christ Jesus rose as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who will die, so that as he was raised, so we will be raised. It is the very fact that God is concerned which prompted this rescue plan and the manner in which Christ accomplished his rescue plan, not dispassionately, not coldly, not callously, but with tears, with indignation. This shows us the disposition that God has towards this rescue. God is profoundly concerned to rescue his people from their sin. So Jesus acts here for Lazarus as a high priest in the way that he acts as a high priest for his elect. He comes to us. He cries for us. He sympathizes with us. He's angry at our enemy. And as we'll see next week, he overcomes our enemy for us. We could never do it ourselves. But Jesus does here in John 11 for Lazarus what Lazarus can never do for himself. And Jesus can do for us will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He will overcome sin and death on our behalf. But he had to enter into the world and suffer in order to make this a reality. As one commentator said, it is because of his tears that our tears may one day justly be wiped away. It is because Christ suffered once for sin that we may one day no longer suffer. George Hutchison, quoted by Rick Phillips, says, Christ's love to his own will follow them to their graves. Jesus cares all the way through and to the other side. So in summary, Jesus does not merely mourn over the human race. Jesus does not merely mourn over the human race. But he does mourn. This shows us that God cares for us and stands ready to rescue us. Jesus being deeply moved and troubled and weeping over sin and death shows us in a human way that God cares about the misery of the human race, our sin and death. Let the Christian feel love then. 
Let the Christian feel love then. Not let the Christian think that God loves him. You catch the difference? Let the Christian feel love then. Look upon the tears of Christ Jesus in John 11 to see what is true, not only of Christ and his humanity, but of the whole Godhead. There is love for you, Christian. Love which prompted Christ to come into this world, to weep, to snort with indignation, and to go to the cross to do something about it. Let the Christian feel loved when he beholds the tears of Jesus. And let the unbeliever know that God is grieved in some sense, improperly speaking, in a way proper to an impassable and immutable nature. But nevertheless true. God is grieved in some sense over your sin, over your unbelief. God invites you, as he did those sinners in Ezekiel's day, to turn from your wicked ways and live. To be gathered, as Jesus said to those unbelievers in Matthew 23 and in Luke, I think it's 14, to be gathered under the wings of Christ Jesus as a chicken gathers its chicks to itself. God invites you, unbeliever, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in him who came into this world, as Calvin said, to rescue the human race from its plight. Let the Christian feel loved. Let the unbeliever know that God is grieved over your sin and your unbelief, and that he invites you to come.